Wow. Well, what a week we've had and what a story we are in, in looking at Jacob. I was actually given chapters 29 to 31 to preach on this morning, so I'm going to be sticking to my notes so I don't spiral into a thousand different sermons. Um, But we're going to have a quick look at the story we've been in of Jacob. And then we're going to ask a key question, a kind of question as we go throughout this. And the question is, do I have to be perfect to please God? Can God make me perfect? Do I have to be perfect to please God? And then we're going to lead into a bit of reflection about the events of this week. But we're going to take a few minutes now just to ask God to speak to us. Um, We had a wonderful small group on Tuesday, and as Caroline led us through the Bible passage, it was incredible seeing just how many different insights um, there are to gain from this story, how many different perspectives people in the room had. And so let's just pray, because God may want to say something slightly different to you as we look together at this passage today. God, thank you that you love to speak. And God, I pray for us now that you would help us, give us the grace to give you our attention this morning, to listen to you, God, to hear what it is that you might want to say to us, that you might want to remind us of, situations you might want to speak into. So please help us this morning, I pray. Amen. Well, Jacob's grandparents and parents struggled in their family lives, and we're picking up the story today where we meet our Jacob, who, having wrestled in the womb with Esau, deceived his father into blessing him, has wound up being deceived himself, and has found himself in an incredibly complex family unit with two wives. And so the turmoil and pain of competing for affection and status continues with Jacob here in his own very messed up family. So then in Genesis 29, 31, we see that the Lord sees that Leah is not loved. His wife Leah is not loved. And so God blesses her with children. And Leah grasps something of the God that Jacob believes in because she gives him credit for the children that she has. And eventually, when she has her fourth child, she stops pleading with God that her husband might love her and instead says, do you know what? I'm going to rise above the circumstance I'm in and I'm going to praise God anyway. And she names that fourth child Judah. I In a sense, I'm going to put my trust in God, she says. And interestingly, this pivotal moment, though, doesn't stop Leah having moments of weakness. There continues, as we go on through that chapter, to be a bit of a battle with the sisters as to who's going to produce the most children. Rachel starts producing, and then they both end up giving their maidservants to Jacob as wives so that they will start producing. Even that pivotal moment means she's not become perfect. She still continues to mess up. And so continues much pain. And Jacob, who having experienced himself a father who favored a son, and being hurt by that, goes on himself to favor one of his sons above 
all the others. And we begin to wonder, or I've been wondering, do any of them learn anything? Are any of them being changed by God? Is it possible, God? Can you make us perfect? You're putting Jacob through all this. Come on, where's the perfect Jacob coming out the other end of it? Do I have to be perfect, Lord, to please you? Then in verse 25 of chapter 30, Jacob asks Laban if he can leave with his family and go back to his own homeland. Laban is reluctant to let him go because he has been blessed by having Jacob with him. He's become prosperous. Of course he's not going to let Jacob go. He is very happy to receive the second-hand blessing that comes through being in the presence of Jacob. And so in a sense, for his short-term happiness, he is happy to live through somebody else's relationship with God rather than perhaps seek his own relationship with God and look towards a longer-term happiness. Laban, in a sense, is quite lazy here. So um, Jacob suggests to Laban that he will continue to tend the flocks, but as his wages, he'll take every speckled or spotted sheep or goat for his own. He um, kind of does some slightly bizarre methods to try and make that sort of happen. He ends up with all the spotted and speckled goats and sheep and stuff. But essentially, for his bizarre methods don't really work scientifically. So essentially, God steps in and actually every strong sheep and goat that's born is spotted or speckled. And so Jacob increases in wealth and where Laban has denied him the right wages he should have had for his work God prospers him nonetheless then we get to the point where jealousy and anger arises because Laban's sons are looking on and going oh he's going like really rich what about us and they um, they rise up in jealousy and anger and so the Lord intervenes he says look Jacob you've got to go now now is the time to leave Rachel and Leah, who feel mistreated by their father, are happy to go with Jacob. And so while Laban is busy, they secretly and deceptively, Jacob the deceiver comes out again, they deceptively leave. Rachel steals the family gods. Jacob gets the cattle, his wives and children ready, and they sneak off while Laban is busy. Have they learnt anything? God, aren't you meant to be perfecting Jacob, getting rid of his deceptive nature? And here he is in fear, deceiving again. God, can you make me perfect? Do I need to be perfect to please you, Lord? So Laban discovers that Jacob has fled and he goes in pursuit of him. However, God intervenes yet again and Laban has a dream warning him not to do anything to harm Jacob at all. And so when Laban eventually catches up with Jacob, he's angry, but he's not going to act on that anger to harm him. But he is angry. And he turns up and he says to Jacob, look, why have you run away from me? Why have you deceived me? I want to say goodbye to my daughters and my grandchildren. They all really belong to me. What are you doing? He shares his dream with Jacob and he doesn't harm him. The second thing, so he's angry that they've not said goodbye. Second thing he's angry about is they've stolen his family gods. Where are they? 
Well, Jacob responds to the first of his complaints, his anger of sort of why they didn't say goodbye and saying, kind of, look, we both know you wouldn't have let me go kind of thing. Come on, that's an easy one. And then Jacob gets angry in turn. I have not stolen your family gods. Of course, Jacob has no idea that Rachel has stolen them. So he denies the stealing. Laban then goes to look for his gods. Interestingly, he goes into Leah's tent first, maybe because he knows Leah knows how to be deceptive. After all, they together had deceived Jacob in his marriage to her. Um, So maybe she's the one who stole them. Then he looks into the maidservant's tents and eventually into Rachel's tent. However, Rachel herself has been brought up by a deceiver, and she too knows how to deceive. She sits upon the gods, telling Laban she cannot stand up as she's having her period. Laban clearly does not question this. He doesn't go there. And so he never finds his missing gods. Jacob is then incredibly angry for being accused. He points to all the faithful work that he has done over many years. He acknowledges how God has prospered him in spite of Laban cheating him many times. And Laban and Jacob eventually come to agree to leave each other in peace. They agree not to harm each other, and they make a kind of pact before God. A degree of reconciliation is found. A better parting is had. And as we look towards the chapters to come, maybe not a perfect Jacob, but a humbler Jacob, a Jacob who clings and fights for God's blessing, a Jacob who seeks reconciliation with his brother, emerges. God, are you, are you making him more perfect? Can you do that, God? Where's the complete package, though? <laughs> it's not quite there, is he? We're going to pause, have a brief interval, And I'm going to ask these questions that are on the screen. So if you're an introvert, feel free to just put your head down now and just kind of take some time out. And if you're an extrovert, feel free to grab someone and actually chat out loud. Um, What has struck you so far from this incredible story of Jacob? What might God want to say to you, remind you of, warn you about, or encourage you with from this story? If you're a reflector, a brief warning, I'm not going to give you enough time to do this exercise, so you might have to take it away with you just to caveat that in. But you've got a couple of minutes, just, yeah, literally. Um, Chat to someone next to you, put your head down, just have a think. What is it, Lord, that you're saying from this story? And so as we come back together, can I encourage you to take these conversations or take the thoughts you're having in your heads and take them with you into this week, back into small groups, or to just have ease in your own quiet time. But let's keep thinking upon this incredible story of Jacob. So um, I think if I went round the room, we could probably gain an overwhelming amount of sermons and lessons to draw from this story of Jacob. There is so much going on, isn't there? How do I respond to a bad boss? What do I do when there's conflict? Do I flee or confront? How do I have a difficult conversation? How do I respond when I am unloved? When do I choose to speak to God about what I should do? And when do I march ahead, doing things in my own strength, maybe? 
There's so much going on, isn't there? So much going on. And um, we could talk about goodbyes. How do we do goodbyes properly? We're doing that today, aren't we? And, um, you know, maybe we could hunt Keir and Jess May down when they go out that door like Laban, kind of drag them back for another three years of work. Sounds quite appealing, doesn't it? Um, But, you know, actually, how are we going to say goodbye? How are we going to let them go? How are we going to bless them as they go? How do we leave things well when they come to an end? Interesting lessons. And what of Rachel and those stolen gods? That bit of the story always really bugs me. I'm always like, what is going on, Lord? Why did you not smite her um, for stealing those foreign gods and valuing them? What what are you doing? And, And we never get to find out if anyone ever discovers if she's stolen those gods or she just kind of secretly buries them in the ground and says no more about it. We just don't know, do we? And because I quite like to know what happens, that, that kind of frustrates me slightly. What is going on? Is it that she is the girl who, by appearances at least, had it all? She was so beautiful. She had the love of a great man, a prosperous man. She had by appearance it all, and did she then miss the greatest treasure? Did she miss believing in Jacob's God? Did she miss that? Did she not listen properly around the fireplace when Jacob told the stories of how God had spoken to him and met with him? Did she miss the greatest treasure? Is it because of that that God chose Leah over her? Leah, who did by faith grasp hold of God. What's going on with all of that? So many things are happening in this story. But above all, I believe we discover a God that we just wish the characters had sought after more in their lives. Don't you just wish they'd said, well, God, you've told me to leave. Okay, God, how shall I do that? Let's pray about that rather than just fleeing off in the night. Don't we wish they'd asked the Lord more to be involved, sought after him, and perhaps then they wouldn't have fallen so easily into so many mistakes relationally or financially or in other ways. We discover a God who watches over his purpose and people. A God who's able to enter the dreams of an enemy and hold his anger at bay. A God who protects. A God who provides. A God who speaks. A God who reconciles. A God who does not leave us as we are. A God who readily forgives and lovingly works in our mess. A God who is at work to perfect Jacob. But from... A perfectionist point of view, Jacob never, for me, quite gets there. He still makes such a blimmin' mess of his own family life, despite having encountered the Lord Almighty, having experienced that disappointment of not having affirmation from his own father. He goes on to favor one of his sons above the others. And like many of the Old Testament characters, like Noah, who ends up drunk in the cave, or David, who sleeps with another man's wife, we find in Jacob our humanness reflected back at us. And I find it deeply uncomfortable because actually I'd quite like to be perfect. God, can you make me perfect? 
why am I making those same mistakes again as we find Paul wrestling with in Romans 8? (laughs) And yet, it is very fair to say that God takes Jacob's humanness and ours. (laughs) And he takes Jacob and he does knock edges off him as he encounters Laban's deceptive nature and begins to see that it's not very nice. We see him attempting to reconcile his brother. And at the very end, he speaks to all of his sons, not just his favorite. But most importantly, at the very end, we discover he is clinging on to faith. And being perfect is actually not what pleases the Lord. It is having faith that pleases the Lord. And so we discover that though we never quite get up to Christ's standards, God is so ready to be with us in our mess. The maker of the universe, the all-wise, walks with us with outstanding patience, looking not for perfection, but for hearts that are unsettled with this earth and long for the presence of God and have an inkling of faith. That is what God is looking for. And phew, oh, phew, that's a relief for me. I don't have to be perfect, but I have to be unsettled with this earth. I have to be longing for the presence of God, and I have to cling on to faith. And so we find the story is not so much about the characters, but about a God who through it all outworks his purpose of forgiveness and brings before them eternal life. We see how quick God is to restore and to forgive. And I was um, praying in church last Sunday night. If you've never been to Soak, um, it's wonderful. It's a chance we have in the church calendar just to like stop, to reflect, to lie on the floor, to do our thing, whatever that is, chant some liturgy, whatever. You know, it's just to be with God by ourselves. And for me, on Sunday night, the Lord led me into Hebrews and it just helped me grasp Jacob and prepared me for, for this week ahead. You see, I'd quite like, um, I'd quite like to be perfect, and um, I'm a little bit frustrated um, that God's work in me seems to be a bit slower than I'd, I'd like, but I'm mightily relieved to discover <laughs> that actually I'm never going to get there, I'm never going to be perfect, that Jesus Christ comes, and he presents me perfect by taking all my rubbish bits upon himself. And what he looks for in me is not perfection, but my faith in him to do that. And so I read these words in Hebrews, and they spoke so much to me. Because these words are about Jacob. They're about Noah. They're about Abraham. They're about David. And they say this. All these people, Jacob, Noah, all these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they'd left, they would have had the opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is amazing news. That in faith, we are welcomed by God as citizens of heaven. Those of you who feel a little bit homesick right now on earth, be greatly comforted. For God is not ashamed to be your God. And so it was. And so Jacob was taken and used by God, despite perhaps from a perfectionist point of view, never being made completely perfect. He was shaped by God. And as we trust in God, he does work in us and through us. These verses have also spoken to me as we've gone into this week. They have been pivotable to every devotion I've had. I've inflicted it on the staff scene before Sunbeams. Um, But these verses have just been so key. They've just rung out so loud and so true. Because however we have felt this week with the decision that's been made, we as followers of Jesus are meant to live as though we are exiles. Our citizenship is heaven. And in these verses in Hebrews, it shows us that admitting we're strangers on earth is a good thing. We see in the New Testament that God's concern is not with borders and the building of nations, but with the building of his kingdom, which is to encompass people from all over the earth. And as Christians, there are two things we need to hold on to, whatever our views. So very quickly... Firstly, from Deuteronomy 10, but it's spread throughout Scripture. God's call on his people to defend the fatherless, the widow, and to love the foreigner. As Christians, we're to be actively engaged in defending the fatherless and the widow and to love the foreigner. In those times, the father and the widow, they were those that had no structure to protect them. Who amongst us has no structure to protect them? For we are to defend them and love them. And we are to love the foreigner. God says to his people, you know what it was like when you were slaves in Egypt? You know how that felt? People today, church today, do you know how it feels to be a citizen of heaven and to feel a bit uncomfortable on the earth? Well, remember that feeling and welcome and love the foreigner in your midst. And the second thing we're to hold on to comes from Jeremiah 29, where God continues to show his people how to live as strangers in the world. And God says this to them. He says you're to settle where you are, have families, grow crops, and pray for the peace and the prosperity of the place you are in. Church, if there's ever a day for us to stand now in our time to pray for the peace And the prosperity of where we are, it's now. And not just to pray, but actually a call to engage in our homes, in our workplaces, in our community spaces. To be the ones that help find the middle ground and draw people to it. To be the ones who have the difficult conversations in love, not anger. To be the ones who stand up for those in need. 
we have many different views amongst us and in our community. It's probably fair to say, I don't know, my daughter's school, the children voted, 88% of them voted to remain, if that's an indication of where Chiswick stands. And actually, there were tears in the playground on Friday. Um, we've got a bit of a divide going on between young and old, between rich and poor, between all kinds of different things. Our nation is broken. And whatever our views, we are now as Christians to lead in praying for peace and prosperity at the place where God has called us to be, as we long for our heavenly home. So I just want to invite you to stand with me, and as a sign of unity today, we're going to just do that together. We're just going to briefly pray. Firstly, God, thank you for the fabulous news that you look for faith in us rather than perfection. And as you get hold of us, you do chip edges off us. But God, you love us. You love that inkling in us of faith. God, thank you. Thank you. And God, together as church here in Chiswick, Lord, we cry out to you in our hearts for the peace and for the prosperity of this place, of this city, and of this nation. And would you awaken us by your grace to engage for each of us where that's right to engage, and to continue in prayer as we go from this place. In your precious name I pray. Amen.